Most of you know by now that I'm a recovering perfectionist. I'd like to attribute that to my musical training. After all, the, key, the keys on a piano are black and white. But the truth is that I've had that mindset since early childhood. It's harder to correct now after thinking that way so long, but I'm working on it. One thing I'm especially prone to is all or nothing thinking. Neither a good person or a bad person. This, should, this might sound familiar to a lot of you, this all or nothing thinking. I'm either all good or all bad. I'm either a good pastor or a bad pastor. I'm either a good husband or a terrible husband. You know, the list goes on and on and on. And I imagine many of you play this game with yourselves as well. And of course, such thinking is not in line with either the Bible or the confessions. Sure, Jesus tells us to be perfect as God is perfect in the Sermon on the Mount. But that perfection is akin to shalom, completion, and wholeness. Besides, the confessions remind us that even after baptism, the inclination to sin remains active in us, though the Holy Spirit continues to work in us our whole life long to kill that inclination as well. If you're wondering where I got that from, pastors and others, the Apology of the Oxford Confession, Article 2, Original Sin, Part 35, Kolb and Wenger edition. Put a mark in that. So we humans exist in a middle place as fully sinner and fully saint. So in such a middle state, we exist as a paradox. No, we're fully perfected people of God, and we're complete sinners. Nothing we do in this realm, therefore, can ever be perfect, at least not in the way that we could see or observe, really. We live with choices that are more or less in accordance with God's will for us. There's a lot of gray when it comes to living the Christian life. However, there is one point in our faith that is a true all or nothing. It's the article by which the church stands or falls. If this one event isn't objectively true, then we might as well fold our congregations, sell our buildings, join other community organizations if you'd like. Or as Paul quotes in the chapter, in the part we didn't read in chapter 15, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Why? Because if this one event didn't happen, then there is no future and no point for the church. That event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul goes all in here. This is the hinge and the point of his entire ministry. Either Christ is raised, and therefore we who belong to him have received forgiveness and the sure and certain promise of a resurrection like his, or we are still in our sins, we die, and that's it. Indeed, Paul says that if Christ is not raised, that he and all other Christians are of all people most to be pitied. That's not a, it was a good life anyway, kind of sentiment. It, it is, everything is on the line here with this. That's a far cry from the cultural Christianity of 
today. You know, where being a Christian is nice as long as you can fit it into your schedule. That kind of faith is really non-faith because it doesn't take into account the radical claim that Paul makes here. Either Christ is raised or he is not. Either eternal life is found in him or it is not. Either he is the Son of God who lived, died, and rose again to redeem and restore humanity to right relationship with God, or he is not. There really is no in-between here. Sure, we can see Jesus as a wise teacher or a moral example or a brave man who was ground between the gears of the apparatuses of religion and empire. We can see him in these three ways among many. There are so many varying interpretations of the life of Jesus out there. But when it comes to our salvation... One question alone matters. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And to this, Paul gives an emphatic yes. Above all our doubts and fears, Christ was and is raised from death. And Christ's resurrection is not just an isolated case, divorced from the rest of humanity. Jesus, remember, was and is fully human, alongside his full divinity. Jesus' destiny is tied forever with the destiny of the rest of the human family. Through our first parents, sin and death entered the world. Through Christ, sin is washed away and death is overcome can be hard to believe, of course. We ourselves haven't seen the resurrected Christ in the flesh. We don't have the first-hand knowledge that the apostles had. Paul lists quite a few eyewitnesses to the event. First Peter, then the Twelve, then James, then 500 brothers and sisters, some of whom were still alive when Paul wrote that letter. And of course, Christ appeared to Paul in untimely after Christ's ascension. Unless we've received some extraordinarily rare spiritual gift, we haven't seen the risen Christ ourselves with our own eyes. Moreover, from what we know about nature, dead remains dead. We come into being, we live a little while, and then we die. How can we know that Paul and the rest of the apostles were telling the truth? How can we know that Christ was really risen? There was nothing to gain by the apostles saying that their Messiah, their leader, their friend was alive if he was objectively dead. Absolutely nothing to gain. There were many messianic figures during the first century in Palestine, and the script was the same for all of them. When they were killed, their followers scattered for good. They became footnotes in history. We know of quite a few of them. If the apostles had said that Jesus was alive when he was objectively not, the Christian church would have been aborted. 
it would have truly been a ludicrous sect somewhere on the order of the flat earth society. But Jesus' friends and untimely born friends like Paul experienced something extraordinary. They, they would not have put their lives on the line for this if they had made this up. They experienced something that made them risk and lose their lives for the sake of this truth that they knew. They knew. They saw Jesus risen. We don't have a Christian church without the resurrection of Christ. The diversity of resurrection stories in the New Testament are further evidence. If there was some kind of plot among the apostles and evangelists to get the resurrection story straight, as I've heard some articles in recent years claim, do you think there would be various stories scattered among the four Gospels? Of course not. There would be one streamlined narrative if this was an ahistorical story. As it is, Mark has an empty tomb, right? And nothing else, unless you count those couple of editions added a few centuries later. Mark just has the empty tomb. Luke has the women telling the disciples and being ignored, of course, and the Emmaus Road story and the eating fish story. Matthew has Jesus meeting the disciples in Galilee to tell them that he'll always be with them. And John has the story of Mary in the garden, Peter and John racing to the tomb, the disciples behind locked doors, and in the epilogue to John's gospel, the fishing story, where they see Jesus on the beach cooking breakfast for them. And of course, there is you. There's you and me. You, the Christian, are the best evidence of the resurrection of Christ. Without the resurrection, there's no Christian church, there's no Paul, there's no Gospels, no Augustine, no Aquinas, no Luther. As the late Rabbi Pinchas Lapid puts it in his provocative book on the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, a Jewish perspective. Without the faith of the Jews spreading out through the world, through the resurrection of Jesus, we would still be offering sacrifices to Wotan on the Danube or on Lake Agnes. Although it wouldn't be called Lake Agnes, would it? It would be called Lake Frida or Lake Brunhilde or something else like that. Whatever your preference would be, in any case, we would not be worshiping the God of Israel today. Finally, there is the truth of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that creates faith in all of you and in, and in me. That faith is what keeps and sustains the Christian church throughout the ages. What kind of a story has that kind of staying power unless it isn't true? Because the faith of the people of Israel, of the God of Israel, has spread through Christ, we have certain assurance and sure hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Even if we can't picture it, it is guaranteed by God. And therefore, nothing can take it away. Not coronavirus, not fear, not other authorities. We all face death one day. 
nothing can change that. But because of Jesus, we will all live. We will all be changed. This is most certainly.